From the Heidelberg Catechism, let's read together Lord's Day 21. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by a spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers all and every one, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my, sin for na- nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of when someone speaks about the church? Most people consider the church to be a building for public worship. Some people speak about the church as a particular denomination of Christians. For example, the Roman Catholic or the Lutheran church. When the Bible speaks about the church, it always refers to a group of worshipers. The church is not a building. Even without a building, a church can still exist. For the church is a group of people. The church is a holy congregation and assembly of true Christian believers. We do not worship at a church or participate in a church. We are the church. It's important for us to understand this. For the quality of a church is not measured by the condition of its buildings or the appeal of its services, but by the state of the people themselves. To be a true and living church of Jesus Christ, we need to be a gathering of believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. For there to be a church, there needs to be living members of Christ's body who are committed to Christ as head and to one another as fellow believers. Many people today no longer believe in the church. Many in our society have been estranged from the church. Although their grandparents or great-grandparents attended, they never did. Many left the churches they attended because they were not relevant to their lives. In their services, they did not hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking to them. Church just became an irrelevant tradition. 
Today, many simply don't understand what the church is or why it's important. We see that reflected in people's attitudes during the, per, during the present health crisis. They think it's perfectly reasonable for churches to be shut down. To them, there is nothing essential about in-person worship. The present health crisis has helped us to appreciate the importance of the church. When you've been denied the opportunity for in-person worship for months on end, you become more appreciative of the blessings that come from gathering together as the body of Christ. But we also are in danger of undermining the importance of the church. With renewed opportunities to gather for in-person worship, will we make the effort to come? Or is it more convenient to gather on, the, on a couch with a coffee in your hand and to watch a live stream of the service? Do we truly understand the church to be a gathering of God's people? And are we committed to being living members of Christ's church? In the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe, a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Our Catechism deals with these articles under the general heading, God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. It shows us that the church is one of the means by which the Holy Spirit makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Those who are truly committed to Christ need to recognize that the church is his bride. We need, we need to unite ourselves with Christ's body to be living members of it in order that we also may share in Christ's gifts. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. Christ has gathered us together as his living congregation. We'll see the foundation on which the congregation is built, the bond by which the congregation is united, and the grace from which the congregation may live. Lord's Day 21 begins with the question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? The question is not, what are your thoughts about it? The Catechism is not interested in what you personally think about the church. It does not speak about the church from a human point of view, as the vast majority of people do today. The question is, what do you believe about the church? In answering this question, we need to take a Christ-centered approach, for that's what the Bible teaches us. You can't speak about the church without focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church, and we are all members of his body. Many Christians today have a different viewpoint on the church. Many see the church as little more than a club. You join it when you like. You leave it when it no longer suits you. For many, the church is no more than a voluntary association of like-minded people. That's why many churches today have a revolving membership. People go church shopping to see where they feel the most comfortable. In this way, today's individualism, the doctrine that I come first, has made significant inroads in the church of Jesus Christ. 
Whenever we think or speak of the church of Jesus Christ, we must remember that it is a community of those whom God is calling from out of this world into fellowship with himself. There would not be a community of those who are gathered, defended, and preserved by Jesus Christ if it were not for the gracious actions of our God. In Ephesians 1, Paul makes it clear that God, from before the foundation of this world, has chosen in Christ to save a people from out of the fallen human race. The origin of the church thus lies in the sovereign good pleasure of our God. We don't deserve to be members of the church. The fact that we are is only because of God's mercy and grace. God has not just chosen to call certain people from out of darkness into his marvelous light. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ came in human flesh to redeem us from our sins and misery. He has ransomed us by his death on the cross. He is gathering those whom the Father gives him into his flock. Thus the church is built by Christ as he gathers his bride to himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ poured out his spirit on the church of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwells in the church collectively and in the members individually. He works faith in the hearts of God's children. He allows us to share in all Christ's blessings. He is busy reaping a harvest from all peoples and nations and languages. The life and the preservation of the church depends on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that the church's origin, its gathering, and its preservation depend completely on the works of our triune God. Now we can ask the question, what is the church? The English word church originates from the Greek word kuriakos, meaning that which belongs to the Lord. The word that is translated church in our Bibles is ecclesia. It refers to an assembly of people gathered together in one place. Put that together, we get a definition of the church. A church is something that belongs to the Lord, made up of people God has called out of this world to be gathered to himself. Often when we speak about the church, we have a building or an institution in mind. But the church is not somewhere you go. The church is something that you are. The Bible makes clear the close link between Jesus Christ and his church. Peter makes this point in 1 Peter 2. He describes our Lord as the chief cornerstone. And us as living stones who are being built into a spiritual house. The close unity between Christ and his church is further seen in other scriptural images. Christ is portrayed as the head and we as his body. Christ is the shepherd. We are his sheep. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. The point, beloved, is, is that there is an inseparable connection between Christ and his church. Jesus Christ is the foundation on which the church is built. And thus, those who profess to believe in Jesus 
but want nothing to do with the church, need to re-examine their beliefs. Those who have a bad attitude towards the church, who speak negatively about it, need to amend their ways. Jesus Christ loves his church. He gave himself for her. He washed the church in his own blood. He longs for the day when the church will be gathered to himself into eternity. The church is Christ's bride. Christ is totally committed to her. He said he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not overcome it. Those who know Christ and love him will also come to love his church. They'll join themselves to it because to be a member of the church is to be a member of Christ. Yes, beloved, we believe a holy Catholic Christian church. For us, this is an article of our faith. It's something we need to confess with our lips, but it's also something that needs to show forth in our lives. If we know what the Bible says about the church, we should also understand how important it is that we join and unite with it. If it is our conviction that the church is the fruit of God's redemptive work, it has this further important consequence, namely that those who belong to the church have saving fellowship with God. In church history, this point has commonly been expressed in two ways. On the one hand, the church has been called the mother of the faithful. When speaking about this in his institutes, Calvin remarked that no one can claim to have God as his father unless he has the church as his mother. Calvin views the church as the external means by which God calls his people to himself and through which he ministers to them. From this we see that unless we have been gathered by the Spirit and Word into the fellowship of the church, we are not presumed to be members of the household of God, children of our Father in heaven. The same point is made in the Belgian Confession when it says that there is no salvation outside of the church. No one ordinarily comes to be united with Christ, becomes a partaker of his benefits, unless he or she has been gathered into the church where Christ is pleased to be present through his spirit and word. When the psalmist sings in Psalm 87 of the glorious things that are spoken of Zion, chief among them is the declaration that this one and that one were born in her. The author of Hebrews describes those who are saved as those who have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. We need to be living members of a local church. You understand, beloved, why that's so necessary? It's because Christ has promised his treasures and gifts to his church. Christ has commissioned his church to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. These are the means by which he brings us to faith, by which he preserves us in our faith. If you want to share in Christ and in his gifts, the place to do so is in the midst of his people, the church. Now, you may face struggles or disappointment in your local church. 
You may have issues with fellow members of the church which make gathering together difficult. But please remember, the church is Christ's bride. He loves her. He will preserve her to the end. That's the perspective that will allow you to be a living member of Christ's congregation. In our first point, we've seen the foundation on which the congregation is built. In our second point, we'll see the bond by which the congregation is united. After speaking about the church, our catechism moves on to what we believe about the communion of saints. To understand what this is all about, we need to examine who the saints are and what it means to have communion with them. Often when we talk about saints, we think about holy men and women in church history. The Roman Catholic Church actually has criteria by which it recognizes certain people as saints after their death. Thus in our society, the apostles and Mary and various popes and people like Mother Teresa are recognized as saints. The Bible speaks differently about saints. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he addresses the church of God as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart for service to God. Christ is the one who sanctifies us. Through his blood, he washes us from our sins. By his spirit, he renews us in his image. Because of Christ's work in us, we are the saints. Not just a few holy ones among us, but each one of us. So what does it mean that we as saints have communion? With whom do we have communion? And what is the bond that unites us? To have communion means to share something, to have something in common. Fellowship, partnership, and relationship are words that express what it means to have communion with someone. Paul gets to the essence of what it means to have communion in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. He speaks about how God has called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our catechism expresses it this way, that believers all and every one, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. See, beloved, the thing that unites us is not that we come from a similar background. It's got nothing to do with our social, economic position in this world. Having a Dutch heritage, or being white middle-class people are not the things that bind us together. The bond that unites us is that we all share in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The thing that holds us together is that we all share in one body and one spirit. We all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. We're united by a common faith in Christ. And we together share 
all his blessings. Generally speaking, no one has much difficulty with this aspect of the communion of saints. The problems arise not from sharing in Christ, but in sharing with one another. A second aspect of the communion of saints is that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. Practically speaking, this is where we often run stuck. For in living our faith, we need to learn to deal with the fellow members of Christ's body with all their weaknesses and all their sins. For some, the problem is that they feel that they get nothing out of the communion of saints. Other people in the church don't seem to have much time for me. The office bearers don't make the effort to get to know me, to understand my struggles in life. For others, the problem is that they clash with other members of the body. Too often, a judgmental spirit dwells in our hearts with the result that we think, that we even speak negatively about fellow brothers and sisters. The fact that we, as saints, are sinful people often makes it difficult to be truly united as body of Christ. And yet, beloved, the Bible teaches us about the necessity of being united as the body of Christ. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He speaks about how Christ, through the Spirit, has given a great diversity of gifts to his members. And yet Paul emphasizes that we're all members of one body, that our gifts need to be used for the benefit of all. Just as a body needs feet to walk and eyes to see and ears to hear, so Christ's church also needs the gifts given to each of the individual members. We should never think that we have no need of a certain member. Paul emphasizes that those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. The Apostle John makes a beautiful point about how closely our love for God and our love for one another are related. In 1 John 4, he encourages us to love one another because of the love that God has first shown us in sending his Son into this world. In verse 20, John points out, it is impossible for us to love God and at the same time to hate our brother. He writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. From this we see that our love for God needs to find expression in the way in which we live with one another. Those who truly have communion with Christ will eagerly share the gifts they've received from him with their fellow brothers and sisters. And so, brothers and sisters, our attitude toward the community of saints should not be, what can I get out of it? That's a really self-centered attitude. Instead, the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. How can I contribute to the life and the well-being of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Pray for those who are distressed or straying or who face hardships in their lives. Use the word of God to help those with problems to regain a perspective on who God is and on what he has promised us. 
lend a listening ear or a helping hand when appropriate. Give for those in need from out of the blessings that the Lord has given you. Let it be our aim that we always use our gifts and talents for the benefit of one another. This brings us to our final point, and it will see the grace from which the congregation may live. Our Lord's Day concludes by speaking about one further benefit that the Holy Spirit allows us to share in. It speaks about what we believe concerning the forgiveness of sins. In question answer 56, we confess how God manifests his grace in Christ to us. With the catechism, we say, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. We confess God will no more remember our sins. Does this mean that God forgets about them? No. God is what we call omniscient. He knows everything. There is nothing that has been or will be that is outside the perfect knowledge of God. So what does it mean when the Lord says in Jeremiah 31 verse 14, I will forgive their wickedness and will know and will remember their sins no more. We need to make a distinction between the active verb, to remember, and the passive verb, to forget. When someone does something horrific against you, or one of your loved ones, it's likely you'll never forget what's been done against you. Well, in the same way, God doesn't forget any of the sins that we commit against His Holy Majesty. To remember someone's sins means to continue to hold them against that person, to hold them accountable, to nurture a grievance against the person because of his or her sins. When God promises no, no more remember our sins, he is saying he will no more hold them against us. God still knows what we have done, but by forgiving us, God wipes the slate clean. His anger against us because of our sins is taken away. Our sins, which threaten our close communion with God, no longer form an obstacle in our relationship together. Atonement has been made. Christ paid the price. The guilt of our sins is taken away. We've been reconciled to God, restored in our relationship with him. The Bible makes clear the wondrous gift of God's grace in Christ. They show us how the Lord our God is willing to wash away our sins for the sake of Christ's blood. Psalm 103 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah gives us a beautiful illustration of how thoroughly God removes our sins from us. Micah asks, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the, rem- of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The grace that God has shown us will also have effect on how we live as Christ's church. If we truly recognize the misery from which we have been delivered, then we will live thankful lives to the praise and glory of God. If we're aware of our own sins and shortcomings, we'll also be patient with the weaknesses of others. Those with humble hearts will not quickly make judgments about a brother or sister for whom Christ has died. The point is that those who live by grace will also deal graciously with others. Beloved, this afternoon we've seen how Christ has gathered us together as his living congregation Christ is the foundation on which the church is built. Our faith in Christ is what unites us together. The grace that we've received in Christ is the basis for our lives. Do you want to share in Christ and his gifts? The address to do so is his church. Do you desire communion with Christ? The way to experience this is by sharing the gifts he has given you with your brothers and sisters. Do you want to live from out of Christ's grace? Then love one another as Christ first loved you. That's how we can be a living congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing together from hymn 52, stanzas 1, 2, and 4.